Psalm 7. You'll find that on page 450 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. It's one of those psalms that we want to give special attention to tonight. It's, it's one of those psalms that David prayed, presumably, when he was fleeing from Saul over that 10 to 16-year period and hiding in the cave of Adullam. Um, and it's a very important psalm, a song of refuge. Uh, before we look at it, I just want to point out the title. Uh, the ESV here says uh, sh- uh, Shigion, and if you're wondering what a Shigion is, I am also. So no one's really sure what a Shigion is, and that's the truth. You can go do your own research. Uh, presumably, it, it is some sort of song of lament, because that is what Psalm 7 is. And then again, notice the title says, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Well, there is no Cush mentioned in the narrative about David's life. The only Benjamite who is well known is Saul, who was pursuing him. And so it might be a psalm directed about Saul pursuing David, or it might be about one of the men who are with Saul when he has that company of people pursuing David. And yet again, just like with a Shigion, we're not exactly sure um, the setting or the meaning of the setting of this psalm. But with those things not in mind, perhaps I ought to say, uh, let's read together Psalm 7. David here writes, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver O Lord my God, if I have done this, and you're left wondering what, if I've done what, if I've done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies, awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness. Now I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I recently had a friend point out something to me that I had never thought about before regarding songs, especially in the church. He said, it is rare for the church of our day to know what it is to sing laments. Uh, The better part of newer music being written in the church broadly considered is chipper and glee and happy. And there is a place for happy songs, certainly in the Christian life. 
but there is almost an absence of singing laments. And my friend went on to say, and I thought this was very interesting, in fact, he said, you are more likely to find a lament in secular music than you are in modern Christian music, which is really a tragedy because the Bible is full of laments that God the Holy Spirit has inspired for his people to take into their very experiences in the Christian life because the Christian life is fraught with difficulties. The Christian life is fraught with hardship. It's not this sort of Norman Vincent Peale, think positive thoughts and everything will go well. If you think it, it will be. The Christian life is one where we're promised suffering and trials and hardship and difficulties. The apostles said in no uncertain terms, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Uh, the Christian life is one in which the Christian sits in a world that tries to evade sorrow. And while it sits there in that sorrow, it recognizes that there is God and there is hope beyond that sorrow because of what God has promised to do and what he has accomplished in Jesus. Now, as we consider Psalm 7 this evening, we consider this lament, and it is the first in that category of psalms that we're looking at. Uh, what we want to take into consideration is that there are essentially four stages to David's song of lament, or four verses. The first is a cry for refuge. The second is a plea of innocence. A third is a call for judgment. And a fourth is a praise for salvation. And as that psalm kind of follows that pattern, and as we've already said, it's likely that David is singing this psalm in one of the caves of Adullam in which he is hiding when Saul is pursuing him. Remember, David had been anointed king um, as a boy of 15, as a shepherd, not seeking that for himself. Remember, God had sent Samuel to anoint David. And then the next thing we see is the Israelites are engaged in battle with the Philistines and the Israelites are afraid of Goliath of Gath and, and David being the God-fearing and God-trusting young man that he was, hears about this and hears that none of the Israelites will go against him. And so he goes down into battle and, and he says, who is this that defies the armies of God? And he, by God's working, single-handedly defeats Israel's great enemy. And then from that day on, he is being pursued by the king of Israel, who hates that David is getting more praises than he is. For 10 to 16 years, Saul is pursuing David. The better part of David's formative years are trying to stay alive because the most powerful man in the country in which he lives is single-handedly pursuing him. Now, What's remarkable about that is that David never loses sight of the Lord. One old writer put it this way, before David looks at his problems, he looks at his Lord. I think that's a profound, a profoundly simple truth. Before David looks at his problems, he looks at his Lord. Before he even talks about his difficulties, he talks about the adequacy of God to sustain him in those difficulties. That's what this psalm is reflecting. The, the first stage in the psalm is David telling us about his trust in the Lord, though everything is against him, though his life is in danger. Notice David says, O oh Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Now, I love the imagery. I love to think about David in the cave of Adullam and there in 1 Samuel 24 through 26, he 
Uh, you'll remember this. He'll spare Saul's life twice. But he's still hiding in that cave and going from cave to cave and den to den. And, and Horatius Bonar likes to uh, envision what David is saying here to the Lord in this way. He says, this is the voice of one who betakes himself to Jehovah as the only cave of Adullam. He says, David is envisioning the living God as the cave of refuge. Isn't that beautiful? He sees that his experience in the cave can only be likened to God as his refuge. God as his hiding place. God as his place of shelter and safety. You know, those caves were dark. They didn't have lights in them. These were dark caves. Uh, there, was, there was a sense in which there was uncertainty outside the cave. And David is saying to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, in you, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers, deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. You know, one of the interesting things that David teaches us, and I think perhaps the most important lesson that we can learn as we look at the psalm together, is that whenever there were troubles in David's life, they tended to drive him to God. The troubles tended to drive him to God. You know, God can send affliction for a number of reasons. He can send affliction to chasten us for sin. That is oftentimes the case. He can send affliction to keep us from some particular sin and to keep us from falling into some particular sin. He sent affliction to Saul, remember, to keep him from being uh, puffed up. Lest he be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh was given to me because of the abundance of revelation. So God afflicted the Apostle Paul to keep him from future sin. But here in the case of David, we see that, that God sometimes sends affliction uh, for no other purpose than to lead someone to love him more, to trust him more, and to know him more. And that's what David is gleaning from the hardship. You know, I'll never forget, probably 15 years ago, I heard... Ligon Duncan tell the story about a woman who had miscarried. <clears throat> and, and as he walked through that with her, he, he noted how strong her faith and trust in the Lord was through that miscarriage. Um, and I'll never forget Ligon saying in this message, the reason she could praise God in the hard times is because she was used to praising God when the times were good. She was already in the habit of trusting the Lord. She was already in the habit of praising him. By way of contrast, actually today, a friend told me the story about some friends who had been in a church in our denomination. And over the years, they had drifted. And my friend told me that his friend and uh, his friend's wife, she had miscarried and she's functionally denied the faith. Um, and my friend said, because she wasn't in the habit of praising the Lord when the times were good, she wouldn't do it when the times were hard. Um, that's, how, that's how David could do this. That's why David does this. It's, it's as if this is the habitation of David's life. All he knows to do is to cry out to the Lord when times are hard. He doesn't know where else to go. He knows that the Lord is the great cave of refuge. And he knows that in him he's safe. Even when his enemies are like ravenous lions, even when the hardship is pressing down, you know, let me say this this evening, beware 
when people tell you you shouldn't feel shaken or overwhelmed by hardship. I have met these people that put on a pretense of piety, especially in Reformed churches, who will lead you to believe that when you feel overwhelmed, there's something wrong with you. David is overwhelmed. Notice what David says. David says that if God doesn't give him refuge, if God doesn't save him and deliver him, he's going to be torn as if his soul is going to be torn apart, rending it in pieces. David feels completely undone. David feels completely helpless. David feels completely abandoned and broken down in and of himself. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't look at hardship with some sort of naive uh, stoicism and say, it's okay, the Lord's in control. He says, save me, O God, be a place of refuge for me, lest my enemies tear me like a lion. Now, Eric Alexander, picking up on that theme of uh, David trusting in the Lord in the midst of affliction, uh, he says this, he says, the man is persistent at God's throne. I want you to think about that. This whole psalm, notice, notice the words, notice verse one, O Lord, my God. Notice verse three, O Lord, my God. Notice verse six, arise, O Lord. Notice verse eight, the Lord judges me, judge me, O Lord. Notice the end of verse nine, O righteous God. He is calling on the Lord persistently. He is persistent at the throne of God. He is constantly going to the Lord. I don't know if you have found yourself ever doing that, where you're in some sort of difficult situation. You feel helpless and hopeless. You feel undone. Um, Here in this situation, David seems to be uh, maligned by Saul and his people. He is being slandered. His reputation has been smeared. Everything, the bottom has fallen out for David. If you're a person that loves reputation, you should get how painful that might be for David. He has slanderously had his reputation undermined. The anointed of the Lord, the one God has anointed to be the king, is, is, is being said to be an evildoer, an enemy of the state, an enemy of the king of Israel, an enemy of God himself. Saul will actually speak to the people that help him when he's pursuing David, and they're helping him find David, and he will actually say, Oh, bless you, bless you in the Lord. You've shown me such compassion. May the Lord bless you. He was painting David as an enemy of God. And in the midst of that, David is persistent at the throne. He is persistent in calling on the Lord. And Eric Alexander says, he has been driven into God's presence in a new way altogether by the pressures of his experience. By the end of the psalm, he has found that all that his soul needs is in God. Isn't that beautiful? He goes from the beginning of the psalm being completely undone to at the end of the psalm, knowing that his soul has found everything that it needs in the Lord and in his righteousness. Um, That's the flow of this psalm of lamentation. It actually turns into a praise. Isn't that marvelous? As David goes through these stages, starting with this first stage, calling on God for refuge, and then ending with praise and joy, and rejoicing. Well, notice, secondly, David is going to plea his innocence. Now, this has caused people a great deal of trouble. A lot of people have read psalms like this. 
Now notice there in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. I have a hard time praying that. If If you know how sinful you are, you've come to a portion of scripture like this and you think, what in the world? That I can't pray that. If I, if I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, I haven't done anything wrong. Deal with me according to what I've done. I've never spoken evil of others. I've never taken things I shouldn't have. I've never lusted. I've never been proud. I've never been sinfully angry. Don't deal with me according to, to uh, what's not true about me. Deal with me with, with what's true about me. Well, what's fascinating about this is there are other psalms just like Psalm 7. Psalm 57 is one such psalm. And David will pray there that God will have mercy on him, that God will forgive him in delivering him, that God will blot out his transgressions like the so many other psalms where David is asking God not to deal with him according to his sins. The same David who prays this, is the David that says, if you deal with us according to our sins, we're done. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not treat us according to our iniquities. And yet David here is pleading his innocence. And I think the best explanation is that David knows that in this particular situation in which Saul and those who are pursuing him are coming after his life, David's done nothing to merit that. David, you know, uh, Roland Barnes said to me, maybe a year or so ago, I was going through some hardship, and, and uh, I said, I don't understand why this is happening. And Roland said, you know, brother, you don't have to be doing anything wrong to have opposition. That's what David is saying here. He hasn't done anything wrong in order to merit this opposition. He hasn't attacked Saul. He hasn't had impure motives. Sometimes people will just come after you because they're wicked. Sometimes you may go after somebody else because you're wicked. Sometimes oppression comes simply because God has brought it into your life and you've done nothing to contribute to it. You know, the amazing thing about the account of David in the caves, and you'll remember the one time that he spares Saul's life, he sneaks into the cave. He's sort of like a, a trained Israeli operative. You can tell David's had a lot of good training. And he, he sneaks into the cave and he, he cuts off a little piece of Saul's robe. And, and, and then, you know what it says in the Bible? No sooner did he do it that he felt guilty about even cutting off a little piece of the robe of the anointed of the Lord. That's how tender David's heart was. That's how... That's how tender a conscience David had. He felt bad about cutting off a little piece of the robe of the one that God had anointed king before him. And so David is justified, and sometimes we're justified. You know, sometimes there are situations that you will find yourself in, and you will be altogether justified going to the Lord and say, Lord, I have done nothing. I have prayed that occasionally in situations where people are opposing you sinfully, maliciously, slanderously. And you can go to the Lord and you can say, Lord, I have done nothing to merit this. I have, you know what I've done? 
You know I haven't sought harm toward others. You know I haven't wanted evil for others. And David pleads on that. Notice David pleads his innocence, and he is in a sense asking God to intervene because the Lord knows. David is living before the all-searching eye of the Lord. He is willing to say, Lord, you know everything, and you know how I've acted. Um, I think that a man or woman or boy or girl who learns to live before the all-searching eye of God can live before him, both acknowledging when we've done wrong, and like David elsewhere, confessing our sins very freely to the Lord, and also go to him when we haven't done wrong, and when we're in those dire straits and say, Lord, please have mercy. I haven't contributed to this. Have mercy on me. Now, there's a sense, obviously, where this is pointing to the son of David. No one could plea based on his innocence and wrongship toward him more than Jesus. Um, Jesus would have sung Psalm 7. And he's the only one that in the fullest and truest sense could have ever said, Oh Lord, look on what I've done. If I've done anything wrong, if I've repaid anyone evil, if I've done anything sinful, because Jesus is the only one with clean hands and a pure heart who didn't lift up his soul to an idol, who didn't swear deceitfully, the only one who never sinned, who was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. And yet, isn't it interesting that that one suffered more wrongly at the hands of men than anyone. Think about that. Jesus never did anything but good, and yet he was constantly being treated with opposition, hostility, oppression, slander, malice, and hatred, constantly. Um, David here is a type of his greater son, Now, notice that as this psalm continues on and David has cried out to the Lord for refuge, he has has pleaded with the Lord based on his innocence, and now notice he calls on the Lord for judgment. Now, the picture that David is going to set here in this psalm is the picture of, and, and maybe you've had this experience where you've walked into a courtroom, perhaps you've just seen this on TV, someone is on trial, or there is some case being litigated, And everyone is in the courtroom, and they're waiting for the judge to come. And you're sitting in the courtroom, and there are the different parties, and there are the prosecutors, and there is the defense attorney, and there are the family members of the accused or the guilty or whoever it may be, and everyone is waiting on the judge to come in. They are all gathered together, and they are waiting. David is looking at the judgment day in that light as if all the people of God are gathered together and they are waiting on God to come as the judge. Notice what he says. He says, the Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that's in me. Notice, notice what he says. He says um, in verse 7, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you over it, return on high. Now, And David is teaching us a very important lesson. And and it's a lesson that I, the older I get, think that most of us have a very, very hard time learning. And that is the lesson that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Um, 
you know, if social media has taught us anything, it is that you might as well go ahead and just undermine every court system in the world because the court of public opinion is the only court that matters. Um, I hear more people saying, take justice into your own hands today than ever before. You see the great epidemic in the hearts of men that, that men don't want to wait for the Lord to judge. Um, that's why the Bible has to say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. David understands that even if he has to spend the rest of his life fleeing, and God does ultimately deliver him, there is a day of judgment when God is going to execute perfect judgment. And everyone who is unrepentant, he's going to use the imagery of a wet sword. The Lord is going to wet his sword. You know, David knew something about that because, remember, he, he destroys Goliath with his own sword. He knows what ultimate irremediable judgment and destruction look like with a sword in the hand. And he knows that God is going to execute that judgment on all the wicked who will not repent. David knows that the Lord is judge of all the earth. Now, it's interesting when you think about Jesus taking up Psalm 7 in his mouth and singing this psalm and and yet knowing as he taught so clearly in the Gospels, especially in John's Gospel, so clearly that he, he's the one to whom the Father has given all judgment. Um, think about that, that, that the Son of David is the judge over all the earth. He's the one that's going to judge the nations in righteousness. Now, it's good news for us. If you're trusting in him, that's good news. I love the way Michael Card puts it, to look into your judge's face and see your Savior there. The judge is the Savior. It's the same Lord. It's the same Yahweh. It's the same cave of refuge David is crying out for. But for the wicked, he will only be judge. Um, I remember meditating as a young Christian on the the passion narrative of the Lord Jesus. And um, you know where Jesus says to Pilate... um, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and and that you would have no power whatsoever if it hadn't been given to you from heaven. Here's an earthly judge. And remember, Pilate's wife comes to him and tells him, have nothing to do with that just man because I've suffered many things in a dream today because of him. And I remember thinking as a very young Christian, what in the world could have troubled her so much in a dream about Jesus? And I thought, you know, I bet it's that she had a glimpse of Judgment Day, and the one who was standing condemned under her husband was the one who is the judge of all the earth, who judges the wicked perfectly on the Day of Judgment, sitting on the throne of God, judging the nations, everyone gathered before him. John Algerido has a famous sermon, and one I would encourage you to, to look at if you ever get a chance, uh, called The Last Judgment. And he paints this picture that is unparalleled. In anything I've ever read, you feel like you're standing there because you will be standing there. And, and you feel he brings you to the very day of judgment, and you're standing there with billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of people who have ever lived from every tongue, 
and tribe and people and nation before the throne. And God is there to separate the sheep from the goats and to say to the sheep, come you blessed in my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And to say to the goats, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Um, it is a is one of the most sobering pictures that our minds can ever form that will be there. Among that crowd, standing before the Lord, standing before the judge of all the earth, and yet David can pray to that one. In verse 8, even as he cries out to the Lord to judge the wicked, he prays that the Lord would judge him according to his righteousness, according to the integrity of his heart. Now, David is not trusting in his works. David is not saying that on judgment day he was going to pass through the judgment of God because he did enough good things. Notice what David says at the very end of the psalm. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord, the thanks due to his righteousness. Remember, David is everywhere saying, the Lord is my righteousness. The Lord is my savior. The Lord is my redeemer. The Lord will have mercy on me. The Lord has redeemed and saved my soul. And yet David knows that the Lord is his savior, even as he calls on him for judgment. We'll notice that praise of deliverance. And verse 17 brings us to the climax and to the turning point in the psalm. Um, You know, one of the wonderful things about a psalm like this, because it'd be very easy to read a psalm like this with a heavy heart. You're in a good mood. You're picking up on your Bible reading that you started in January. You're like eight chapters in because you just dropped the ball. (laughs) You're picking back up. It's February. You're in Psalm 7. Things are going pretty good. You start reading this psalm and you you just think, I'm not really getting anything out of this. Because that's what happens. Things are going good. You're not getting much out of this. But you know... The thing about Psalm 7 is that it will come to bear on your life. There will be a time when you need Psalm 7. There will be a time when you need to learn from Psalm 7. If you haven't experienced those times, they will come if you're a believer. And the thing about Psalm 7 that is so wonderful is that Psalm 7 works for those that are trusting in the Lord. That's, that's what the flow of this psalm is saying. It works. Trusting in the Lord works. Calling out for deliverance when you're being oppressed, opposed, afflicted, in the midst of suffering, hardship, trials, difficulties. When you're crying out to the Lord, when you're persisting at his throne, when he is the cave of Adulam for you, you will come out on the other side, And you will be able to say with David, I will give to the Lord thanks for his righteousness. I will give to the Lord praise for his redemption. Tim Keller has this great thought. And I think it's very appropriate to what we're looking at here. He says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. That's what the news tends to do. Other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, 
Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. I think that captures so well what's happening here in David's soul. He's sitting in the midst of the world's sorrows. He's not delivered to the best of our knowledge by the end of this psalm. He's going to have lots more affliction and oppression and hardship and trials. And yet David, by the end of this psalm, is praising God, thanking God. And notice the end. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. You know, I I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that so much uh, Christian music in our day lacks the sense of uh, reality. And it lacks that, that reality of laments and heaviness of heart and trials and difficulties and, and the realness of life for the Christian. Um, and, and it just wants to get to the happy and the excited and the elated and the powerful and the energetic. And just it's, it's, sort, of like a, it's sort of like a steroid shot. I love going to the doctor and getting a steroid shot. I, I mean, I ask him, can I please... Please have a steroid shot because it just makes you feel good. Um, that's, that's, it doesn't heal you. Um, what David's saying is there's a way to get to the real joy. And there's a way to get to the real singing praise to God. And it's through the valleys of hardship, trusting in the Lord and finding refuge in him. Knowing that he's the judge over all the earth and he's going to make every wrong right. And he's going to execute vengeance on everyone who will not repent and who seeks to do his people harm and who rages against his kingdom. And yet there is real joy that wells up because of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ already. Um, I hope that you'll find uh, a psalm like Psalm 7 strengthening to your soul, even as you consider these things. And I, I hope that we'll all find God to be a cave of Adulam in which we can hide. When the hardships come, we can flee to for refuge, that we can find shelter in, and that we can praise even when others are opposing us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this evening. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for breathing out uh, such an important word to us. We thank you that you've inspired this song of refuge. We pray, our God, that you would give us the same trust that you gave David. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you in the good times so that we can trust you in the hard times. We pray, our God, that we would know you as both the refuge of our soul and also the judge of the wicked. We pray, our God, that you would give us hearts that Uh, would seek to do what is right and what is good to others and what is pleasing to you. And yet, our God, we pray that we would never forget that it's in you and in your righteousness that we have redemption and life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the son of David. We thank you, our Lord Jesus, that you have suffered and that you have risen and that you are reigning and that you are ruling, that you are judge over all the earth and that you are our savior and our righteousness. We pray that you'd help us to praise you even as we go through hard times. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.